everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg, your host for Times Will Tell, a weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Hi, everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. This week, I'm so excited to shed light on women's lives in ancient Israel through a fascinating conversation with Professor Jenny Ebling. In addition to leading and participating in archaeological excavations in Israel and Jordan, Jenny is sculpting the next generation of scholars through her teaching at the University of Evansville in Indiana. She has written extensively about food and drink technology, which offers a deeper look at the role of women in antiquity. She discusses this in her book, Women's Lives in biblical times, and we talk about a typical day in the life of an Israelite woman. One of the ways we can learn about women's agency, she says, is through studying ancient ovens. This, in part, has led Jenny to hypothesize that women were the master brewers of the ancient Israel. Let's hear more. Hi, Jenny. Thank you so much for joining me. Such a pleasure having you. Where am I finding you today? Hi, I'm in Evansville, Indiana, and I'm in my office in the Department of Archaeology at the University of Evansville. Okay, you are a person who wears many different hats. Uh, Please tell us some of them, and then we'll dive right in. Yeah, I'm an associate professor of archaeology here, and I have co-directed the excavations at Jezreel from 2012 to 2018 with my colleague Norma Franklin of the University of Haifa, and I'm continuing to work on the analysis and publication of that project. And I do various other things um, to support archaeology and spreading the word about archaeological discoveries to the public. And um, also, I you know focus a lot on undergraduate education in archaeology and trying to get students' experiences in the field and in the lab and in museums. So we are here to talk about women, not in terms of being archaeologists, such as you are, but more the other side of the shovel, the women of your, shall we say, the women of the ancient world. And one of the ways we'll discuss that is that you have a theory, a hypothesis at least, that women were the master brewers of ancient Israel. So before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit about how we know what women's roles were way back in ancient Israel? Yeah, no, this is a great question. And it's been the focus of more attention in recent years than it has in the past. So one source, of course, that people have traditionally looked to is the is the text, is the Hebrew Bible to find out more about, you know, women and women's lives. And as you know, many, many know, it's a it's a source that is um, limited, I guess you could say. So, I mean, there just isn't very much about women's lives, you know, that comes through in the text, except sort of anecdotally here and there. So, although that is an important source, I would argue that it's it's not the primary source. The primary source of information we have for people who lived during any period in the past is archaeological remains. I mean, because this is relatively, you know, unbiased and often in situ information, you know, the, the remains that people left behind for us to uncover. So, that's where most of our information about, um, about everyday life in ancient Israel is coming from. From archaeological remains. And in the case of women in particular, we're really fortunate that a lot of the activities that we believe, you know, women were involved with on a daily basis, the, the correlates of those things preserve really well because they're often made of stone and clay, unlike, you know, organic materials that, that don't survive very well. 
And so this this leads us to the you know the bread and beer and um, you know the the kind of what the evidence is for the that kind of um, that kind of work at the domestic level in the Iron Age. It's interesting that you say that archaeology is a relatively unbiased look, but of course the interpretation of your finding can be extremely biased based upon who you are, what your life view is. And so, for instance, uh, shall we say a man who views one certain tool might not see the potential that perhaps a woman or somebody who may have used that, a tool of this nature may have. Talk about this a little bit, too. Right. I mean, everything is subject to interpretation, right? I mean, whether it's textual material or archaeological or iconographic or ethnographic or really any other source of evidence. So that's definitely a good point that, you know, we need to, to be careful about considering archaeological information, you know, inherently unbiased because, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't speak. It's just sort of there, right? It's from the past. So we have to, as archaeologists and historians and others, I mean, interpret that stuff. So I think in the case of, of the kinds of tools and installations that I'm particularly interested in, there's been sort of a, a hole in research because this stuff was basically ignored until um, recent decades. And I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, this is the kind of stuff that when you go to archaeological sites, even today, you sometimes see these things sitting around on the sides and the bulk and the weeds, you know, around around sites that have been excavated. They just haven't even bothered to take them away and register them or anything uh, in the case of groundstone. And then I found also in the case of ovens, they're so ubiquitous. They're found all over the place that people just sort of consider their uses to be self-evident and not very interesting and worthy of study. So I think that's more of the issue than, you know, someone interpreting a stone as one thing and someone interpreting it as another. I think there's just not really been interest in looking at this stuff until relatively recently by just about anybody. Now, you're talking about ovens and ground stones, and obviously these are related to bread production. And how do we know, however, that women were in charge of the bread production to begin with? Yeah. So all the sources of evidence that we have suggest that women were really closely tied to grinding in antiquity. So bread production is something else because we know that, you know, in, in neighboring regions like Egypt, where we have so much information, and then also, you know, in the, toward the east in Mesopotamia, that, you know, men were making bread and brewing beer in commercial or industrial contexts. So the grinding, however, even in the iconographic material from Egypt in particular, usually shows women doing that activity. So that's the difference is grinding versus um, making bread or making food generally. In the Hebrew Bible, there are only two references to men and boys grinding. All of the other references are about women and girls grinding. So it seems to be a very a feminine, you know, kind of associated activity. Um, bread, on the other hand, is, is different. It's more complex. I mean, there's different steps. It can take place in different areas. Bread can be made in different ways. I mean, there's really only one way to grind grain in ancient Israel. And, you know, we have evidence for it all over the place. But bread, you know, can be made in ovens, it can be made in, in embers, you know, it can be made on, um, on, on plates or trays and, you know, in other ways. So it's just a, a bigger topic, I guess, than the grinding. But basically, it's just sort of looking at all of the evidence that we have available from the text, from ethnography, from iconography, from neighboring regions, to start to, you know, build this picture of, um, you know, who might have been responsible for different tasks, especially at the household level. You're not talking so much about, you know, in, in commercial or industrial sorts of contexts. So let's talk about a day in the life of the ancient Israelite woman. What would this have entailed? You get up with the sun or before and then? 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's fun to think about, you know, this sort of thing. And, and this is something that, you know, I've been interested in doing, uh, you know, trying to imagine, you know, from all of the little bits and pieces of information that we have trying to put together the story. And I mean, I need, I should preface this by saying that, you know, this is very generalizing and just like, you know, every person's life is, is different and everyone's experience is different today. So it was in antiquity. So it's really difficult to know what a, a typical or average, you know, day would have looked like for an average person. But I think that, you know, Right. Getting up early if you're living in a in a rural area, perhaps, and, you know, you're the basis of your, um, you know, the local economy and, and your life is the, the agricultural cycle, then, you know, preparing for that, you know, whatever tasks need to be done that day um, out in the fields or closer to home in the in the orchards or in the gardens or, or whatever it may be. And, you know, taking care of, of whoever's in that needs to be taken care of. I mean, whether it be, you know, babies, children, um, elderly, others in need, you know, so, you know, doing everything that you need to do to take care of those in your orbit. Um, I think for women in particular, making food, preparing food for the day is something that probably took up hours of a typical day because bread was the the staple food in the ancient Israelite diet, like it was for, you know, Israel's neighbors and um, was in the region up until relatively recently. So before it was possible to buy flour, you know, women basically had to had to grind this stuff or, or get it from somewhere else. And in the Iron Age, this could take up to several hours a day if you're feeding, you know, all the kids in your family and and you know, your spouse and, and others, elderly, other people, other relatives living at home. I mean, this could take perhaps up to, it's been calculated three hours per day just to grind the grain. And so women might have done this um, at home. They might have taken their equipment out uh, outside and maybe worked with others. There's some evidence that, that that sort of thing was going on, that people, women in particular, were working together, you know, doing these mundane, arduous tasks for hours a day. The same thing when it comes to ovens. I mean, some ovens are found indoors, some are found in courtyards, but we also find sometimes that larger ovens are found in more um, communal spaces, you know, so that like we see ethnographically women um, in the, in the neighborhood or, or different, you know, women who are related that live in a, in a particular area at a site, you know, might be um, sharing an oven. And so again, this takes hours a day. So, I mean, they may be hanging around the oven and waiting their turn and that's, you know, a great opportunity to, um, you know, catch up on news and gossip and, you know, all socialize, you know, take care of children, that sort of thing. So even though, you know, there are many other things that, that women were doing during the day, I think food preparation was really at the center of that. And so all of those activities then, um, you know, would have taken place in specific areas within houses and outside of them. And this is exactly what we see archaeologically. And probably taking care of the livestock, if there was any, and things of that nature as well. But that, yeah. too, is centered around food. And, you know, as a mother, I, I definitely understand the need to keep feeding the kids throughout the day, all the time throughout the <laughs> right. day. But I have electricity, and, you know, thank God, a microwave, so it's a lot easier for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> you talked about the different placement of the ovens being outside or in other places in inside the houses. And I wonder... You have this paper that I, I got a sneak preview of, and you talk about how this makes a woman have a bit more agency. Talk about that a little bit, too. Yeah, I found this really interesting. And, um, you know, archaeologists have been reorienting in recent times from looking at, you know, the the elites and, you know, the 
the architecture that seemed to really excite biblical archaeologists of an earlier generation, you know, sort of palaces and fortifications and public spaces and things like that. And they've been focusing more on the household. So household archaeology has been developing, you know, in the region now for, for at least 20 years. And so we know a lot more now because people are paying much closer attention, you know, to the minutiae of daily life as is excavated in um, just everyday houses. So I and others, you know, have been looking carefully in some of the at this some of these rooms and houses and, and trying to reconstruct, you know, how activities would have would have played out and how, you know, certain spaces would have been used for, you know, for sleeping maybe or for stabling animals or for, you know, as a kitchen, as a space where there might be um, you know, more specialized activities going on as well like production activities. So what, what interests me about ovens is that, number one, they've been overlooked as a source of information about daily life generally, but about women's lives specifically. Number two, ovens don't move around. So unlike all these other artifacts that, you know, like pottery that people have been, you know, really focused on traditionally, you know, ovens stay put. And so, you know, they, they're not going anywhere unless you physically remove them and, and you know, the all residues of, of them. So... Since the ethnographic information and other sources suggest that women are really closely tied to oven production and oven use, then it, it's an interesting question. You know, were women the ones who were actually building and installing these ovens in specific areas that they chose in houses and around houses, you know, outside in courtyards, etc.? And if so, you know, what does that mean for our understanding of, you know, where they spent their time? How does this look like when we look at other artifacts that are found around ovens? Because it's shown by, you know, various researchers who've looked at this carefully, that often other objects of daily life, like textile production tools, are found in close proximity to ovens. Domestic pottery and other things, you know, that these really suggest that women were sort of like creating their own spaces, that they were going to be spending hours a day in, you know, so it makes sense that you would want to make ovens that are the right location, they're the right height for your body. Um, the same thing with the grinding tools, you know, that they're, I think that they were probably often made to order, if not by the women themselves, then by, you know, people close to them and women selected those that were going to, to work for them physically. I mean, if you're going to be working with a tool for hours a day, you're going to be, you know, modifying it or making it so that it, it works for you. So yeah, that's what I, I've started to look at more closely lately is where we can identify in archaeological contexts you know, women's agency in the placement of ovens. I mean, these very permanent features. And also one that might also continue on to include cisterns and pits and, you know, storage areas and other installations and houses that, that people have not been paying close attention to. It, of course, makes sense what you're saying. Everything about it makes sense. It's just giving women much more, as you say, agency or a voice or a vote in what's going on in their lives than what perhaps we are, uh, you know, trained to think about in, in such ancient times. It makes women much more of a partner in the production of the household uh, domestic uh, product, shall we say. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it really brings them to life and it brings them to the to the fore. And I mean, as I as I like to, to say often, um, you know, that, that we're really lucky that the archaeological evidence really does preserve these activities. I mean, the evidence for these activities and not so much others. So, I mean, the, the archaeological past is dominated by stone and clay. And a lot of these things seem to correlate to women's lives. So it's like, you know, looking for women, it's not that hard. I mean, the it's everywhere. 
It's just a matter of recognizing it. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. Now, one of the things that is so predictably found in these uh, Israelite houses is loom weights, or what have always been called loom weights, at least. And even when I've been on uh, sites, uh, archaeologists have pointed them out to me and say, ah, here's some more loom weights. But maybe, just maybe, they're not actually loom weights, but at the same time, perhaps they are still uh part of a woman's world, shall we say. So tell us a little bit about what these loom weights maybe otherwise could be. Yeah, I mean, there are specialists in in ancient textile production who have looked at this really closely, you know, the weights and sizes of these weights and their material, and how those correlate to, you know, what was being what was being produced in in the Iron Age. And we find lots and lots of loom weights, you know, made of stone and clay uh, in Iron Age context, for sure. There's some of them, however, that are a bit different, that are basically more like balls, I guess, of clay that have a, a perforation that might be maybe a little bit more narrow, or it, it could vary, I guess, it really depends. But sometimes these things that have been identified as loom weights traditionally turn out to have other uses. And so fermentation stoppers, when they're found on the tops of you know, certain kinds of vessels that were used to seal them up while uh, you know, wine in particular was fermenting usually, those things seem to resemble loom weights, actually. So, I mean, it, you know, there, there's variation. I mean, I'm not an expert in this area at all, but I mean, I've seen examples that have been found in, in context, you know, with, with vessels still sitting on top of vessels. And the idea is that the, the perforations in the middle would have been stuffed with some sort of, you know, scrap of, of material or something like that. So the gases can escape during fermentation, but it would then block, you know, insects and, and other things from getting in. So they look, you know, a lot like these loom weights, but they're, but they're not. So the sizes and the weights of them vary considerably. And again, it shows the nuances, you know, I guess that are, you know, you really need to know what you're looking at and have um, a lot of experience examining different types and studying this stuff in order to come up with the, the best interpretation for what they are. But these bottle caps, as as I like to think of them, may have been actually used by women as well, because you also have this a theory that women were the master brewers of ancient Israel. And that's because, and I didn't even think about this before reading your paper, that beer could have been produced through bread. So what is this connection, the beer and bread connection here? Yeah, one of the ways to make um, beer in antiquity was to make it from bread. So we find this from in ancient Egypt and also in Mesopotamia, and it comes through in the archaeological remains and the iconography from um, models and tomb reliefs, and then also in textual sources that show that um, sometimes malted barley cakes were first baked, and then they were crumbled up and added to a vat of warm hot water along with yeast in order to brew beer. And, you know, it was just one of the methods. I mean, there were other methods as well, but this seems to have been common. And so Egyptologist Delwyn Samuel has said, you know, basically ancient brewing was an offshoot of bread production. It was just, you know, carrying it to another another stage, another step. 
And in ancient Israel, there's just been a lot, of, a lot less work in this area than there has been in neighboring regions, just because of the what seemingly, you know, until recently looked like the absence of evidence. It's like, what is the archaeological evidence for brewing? I mean, how do we identify it? Uh, identify it? It's, um, you know, rather few and far between until recently. So I and, and Michael Homan and others, you know, have looked into this question in the recent past, you know, about um, you know, where brewing would have been done in ancient Israel, who would have been doing it, what kind of artifacts and installations it would have involved. And um, we argued that most likely women were making this at home, just like they were making bread on a regular basis at home, using the same tools and equipment with the addition of maybe a single container that would have been necessary to brew the beer in. And unlike wine, you know, which is only made once a year after the vintage season, beer can be made any time of year from stored grain. And it also, um, you know, the alcohol in it would kill uh, microbes, making it safer to drink than water. And it also, you know, germinated grain increases the the calories and the nutrient content of grain. So it makes it even, um, I guess, a better use of grain than simply, you know, turning it into flour and then from there making bread out of it. So it makes a lot of sense that people were brewing in ancient Israel, but it's just been identifying the hard evidence for that that's been a challenge. Now, this beer sounds a lot like Guinness. It sounds like, you know, a bread in a cup, essentially, which is so great about Guinness if you're really hungry and poor and only have money for a cup of beer, which happened to me in my early 20s. But in any case, have you tried this beer yourself? Have you tried making it? No, I haven't. I mean, I have, I teach a course for undergraduate students on ancient food and drink technology. So some students have attempted to do this in the past and I've tasted theirs, but I haven't made my own before. And it's so different from what we think of as beer today, primarily because there aren't hops in it. So, you know, hops came into use in the the medieval period. And so before that, fermented um, grain liquid you know, would take on a number of different flavors. I mean, it's more sweet. It's more like a barley water gruel, maybe, um, kind of substance than what we think of today as a sort of clear, hoppy beer. So it would have been, you know, like you say, I mean, like, you know, drinking your meal in a a cup. I mean, it would have been a really rather nutritious and and relatively low alcohol content um, beverage that we, you know, believe was enjoyed by everyone, just like it was in Egypt and Mesopotamia. I mean, children and adults and, and whoever, I mean, it was also a staple in those areas. It just isn't recorded as being a staple in the biblical text. And do you think that that could be a little bit about how all the Israelites or many of the Israelites, and especially the prophets, were trying to be as opposed to the other cultures, to be distinctive from. And you do note that there's this idea of the Queen of Heaven and the Prophet Jeremiah railing out against women for what uh, becoming drunk or pouring librations or something like this. There is this culture of women as the beer goddess. Talk about this a little bit too, please. Right. Yeah. The ancient Sumerian beer goddess was Ninkasi. And we know also in Egypt that Hathor and, you know, other female deities were associated with alcohol. So, I mean, there is something to this, to women being associated with alcohol in in the ancient Near Eastern world. This, I mean, sneaks in, I guess, into the biblical text, but but not not often, you know, so it's only in, in some places that we learn, first of all, about women participating in these sort of household or neighborhood cultic activities that involve baking bread and pouring out libations to to various deities, including, as you say, the Queen of Heaven. Um, so yes, I mean, that, that could be a, a reason why we don't learn more about these kinds of uh, 
these kinds of things in the biblical text because the writers were were not re- you know were not recording them because they you know of course were very much opposed to them. Another thing that I thought of when you said this too was the uh, association between the Philistines and beer drinking, which in the history of biblical archaeology, because we find these um, distinctive strainer vessels that have been traditionally understood as beer drinking vessels in the Philistine repertoire, that um, you know they've been beer has been overlooked as you know something that the Israelites would have um, you know would have drunk and produced. So, and, and we find this actually with a recent study that was done by colleagues in Israel um, that appeared a couple of years ago in the news and also in, um, you know, it was published that uh, the actual, you know, yeast was, was uh, isolated from different vessels found at sites throughout Israel from different periods, but including two of these strainer jars that are distinctive to Philistine material culture, thus apparently proving that they were used for drinking beer. And I mean, it's really exciting because I mean, it's, you know, some of the first hard evidence that we have that, you know, beer was being made and drunk in the region, but also it ties them to those specific vessels. So now I think, you know, next steps would be to start testing more vessels, you know, and looking beyond just the strainers and looking at, you know, other vessels like that could have been used as beer vats that are found in exactly the kind of context I was talking about before in the household to see if they contain these strains of yeast as well. Okay, and do you assume that that will take place in the future, or, or is this something that you yourself are, are going to have to do in your next expedition? Well, I hope that, that people do take that up, and I mean, I think that that's that's in the works with um with some projects. It's a matter of, I guess, you know, having the interest and also, you know, having the money to do these tests because I mean, it is sort of an extra if this is just like you know one small piece of your overall you know archaeological project, right? But I think now that there's been success in this area, and I think there's increasing interest, particularly in beer in recent years. I mean, you can see this in, in Israeli culture all over the place. I mean, that you know, craft brewing is big business now. It wasn't a few decades ago. So, I mean, I think all of that has combined to make it a really great time um, to start looking at the at this stuff more carefully in the past. So, yeah, I mean, I don't have any immediate plans to, to do this myself, but I, I think that some of my colleagues are moving ahead with this. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what they what they come up with in the next few years. Now, you uh, currently are not leading an excavation. Uh, what are your plans for the summer regardless, though? Right. So I will uh, continue working on the analysis of material that we excavated at Jezreel, which um, primarily we were working in early Bronze Age remains, but Jezreel was occupied nearly continuously from the late Neolithic up to modern times. And it produced one of the largest groundstone assemblages that's been found in in Israel, ironically. Um, So I'm continuing to work on that. There's some really interesting material there. And then, of course, lots and lots of other stuff that that still needs work. So, um, you know, the pandemic, of course, has has delayed all research for everybody. And so there's a I think there's a lot of enthusiasm about getting back to it this summer, especially in the case where, you know, like stone artifacts and ovens, the material can't come with you. (laughs) <laughs> or be shipped overseas <laughs> or whatever, you got to go to it. So I'm looking forward to getting back to some of these things and, and, and getting back into the work. And what do you hear from colleagues and students about uh, the summer and uh, joining some digs finally again? 
Yeah, there's so much enthusiasm. I mean, I have a couple of my students that will be working on digs in Israel and elsewhere in the region this summer. And, you know, people who've been waiting a couple of years to, to go into the field. Uh, so it's it's really exciting. I mean, I just hear a lot of a lot of enthusiasm, you know, uh, different organizations have been really generous and offering scholarship money so that students and others can take part in these projects this summer. So I think it's going to be a really exciting season. And I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing you know, reports of some of some great discoveries and um, from all periods, from what I'm from what I've heard uh, that, you know, just like there's just going to be a lot of field work going on this summer. So, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it and being part of it and being able to get back to Israel for the first time in a couple of years. Great. Now, thank you so much for talking with us. And uh, I look forward to meeting you, I hope, sometime in person when you yeah. when you next thank come. You. Me too. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and check out our daily briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom. Shalom.